The following recording is a presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California, and of Pastor Val Mark Smith. We are an independent Baptist congregation committed to the accurate presentation of the historical doctrines of the faith. We welcome your visit to our services anytime here in the Rohnert Park area. Now, I'd like you to take your Bibles. We'll get started here tonight. And if you'll look in Romans chapter 6, this evening is the second message in our study of living in victory. And this is about the Christian's victory over sin or how we can be overcomers while we're living in this very sinful world. The victorious Christian life is not about gaining wealth. It's not about conquering poverty or having good health. Uh, Those things are nice. We like to have those things, but they aren't really necessary uh, to promote our spirituality. But rather, this is about fighting sin. It's about putting down sin in order that the new man that has been created in Christ Jesus can live to his full potential to the glory of God. Now, I'd like to read our text in Romans uh, chapter 6. And I want you to pay particular attention to certain words here especially the words serve and dominion and reign and obey and yield, because those are key words that will help us to understand the purpose of this chapter. So Romans chapter 6, beginning in verse number 1. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid. How shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? Know ye not that so many of us as were baptized into Jesus Christ were baptized into his death? Therefore we are buried with him by baptism into death, that like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. For if we have been planted together in the likeness of his death, we shall be also in the likeness of his resurrection, knowing this, that our old man is crucified with him, that the body of sin might be destroyed, that henceforth we should not serve sin." For he that is dead is freed from sin. Now, if we be dead with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him, knowing that Christ, being raised from the dead, dieth no more. Death hath no more dominion over him. For in that he died, he died unto sin once, but in that he liveth, he liveth unto God. Likewise, reckon ye also yourselves to be dead indeed unto sin, but alive unto God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body, that ye should obey it in the lust thereof. Neither yield ye your members as instruments of unrighteousness unto sin, but yield yourselves unto God as those that are alive from the dead, and your members as instruments of righteousness unto God. For sin shall not have dominion over you, for ye are not under the law, but under grace." Now, in the message last week, we noted how that sin is a way of life for every person. There isn't anyone who who doesn't desire a life of sin, that that would be his way of life. No one is actually born with a distaste for sin. There's no one who comes into the world and says, well, I just loathe myself because I'm such a terrible sinner. No, the very first breath that we take, we are set on a course of sin And no one has to be made into a sinner. No one has to be taught how to sin. It's just a part of our natural life. 
There's some who wonder about David's statement in Psalm 58, verse 3, where he said, The wicked are estranged from the womb. They go astray as soon as they be born, speaking lies. And we look at that statement and we wonder, is that a hyperbolic statement? Why, why did David make a statement like that? And uh, we say, well, that, that can't be true because babies are such sweet, innocent little creatures. We believe that, don't we? Uh, moms sometimes don't think that when they have to get up ten times in the middle of the night because the baby's crying and they produce these terribly foul odors that you have to clean up with sleep in your eyes. And so not all the time do we think that babies are sweet little innocent things. But we accept them and we say, well, they're, they're good because they're ours and they are little angels. So how could David say something like this, that a baby is wicked from the day that he's born? Well, the truth is that when a baby is born, it's only seconds until he begins to complain. He doesn't like where he is. As soon as he comes out of, the, out of the womb, he's put into a different environment, one different from what he's used to, and he doesn't like that. He's brought into a cold, unfamiliar world, and so he begins to scream to tell you that he doesn't like it. He's not satisfied with that, and that's because the very first thought that a baby has, if he, has a, if he can think at all, and that is, I don't like this, and this is what I want, and so the first thought is self. And a baby never lets you forget that he's the one who deserves all of the attention and he is not going to let go of that until you stop everything that you do to take care of him. And did you know that that thought stays with us for our entire lives? That we do believe that we are number one, we're the ones that have to be taken care of, and we struggle with this throughout our entire Christian lives, throughout the whole time, thinking that we're number one and it's all about us. Well, sin is a way for all of us. It rules what we are. It rules what we do. It rules everything that we want to be. And so Paul just said that is basic human nature. We're born to it. We are natural men. That's the way that we are. And it's been that way since the first man, Adam, sinned against God. Now, the problem, though, with sin is that as much as we like it and we want to live in it, it's our destruction, it will get the best of us. Uh, Twenty years ago, this coming January, my wife's mother passed away, and uh, she died of lung cancer. She'd been a smoker nearly her entire life. And when she died, uh, her death was really a terrible death. I mean, uh, she gasped for every breath that she could get as she, was, as she was dying, and finally she just couldn't do it any longer. And the thing that really puzzles me about that is why that there would be still people in the family, people who saw that, people who cried about it, saw the result of it, and yet they killed themselves doing exactly the same thing. And that is a testament, a testament to the sinful nature. We are born into sin, it killed us spiritually, and it will finally kill all of us physically. Now, when we're in sin... We think, well, you know, it's a good thing. I mean, it's, it's fine. Uh, we're having a good time. But the good time will never last. Sin is a cancer that continually eats at us, and it will finally get to us. It will completely destroy us. Sin brought spiritual death, and as I said, eventually it will bring the physical death of every person that's in this room. Well, without giving you a complete theology of the depravity of man, let me just say this, that there isn't anybody that has the ability to escape a life of sin. Jeremiah said, Can the Ethiopian change his skin or the leopard his spots? 
then may ye also do good that are accustomed to do evil. So it's impossible for us to break sin's hold. You can't change its effects. You're helpless against it. And that is why we need the grace of God. Sin is powerful. It's great. It's a great enemy. But God's grace is greater. Where sin abounds, the Bible says, God's grace does much more abound. So where there is sin... God is able to go deeper with His grace to get underneath that sin and rip sin out by its roots. And the message of this chapter is that Christians do not have to let sin rule over them. And that's because we've been given a new nature that is resistant to sin. It can't be ruled by sin. And the victorious Christian is one who lives out of that new nature and has put to death that old man of sin and defeats him by the power of God. And so the message of the chapter is that we have been set free from sin's domain. We have died to sin. And so Paul asked the question, If you have died to sin, shall we that have died to sin live any longer therein? Well, we're going to look into that aspect as we go through the messages and maybe talk a little bit more about it in just a few minutes also. But before we do, let's return to the first point of last week's message that I didn't have time to complete. And we were discussing the demands to meet for living in victory. The command in verse number 12 is, Let not sin reign. Don't let sin reign in your mortal body. So there Paul is taking sin and he describes it as a ruling king. And actually sin is the domain of Satan who is the prince and power of the air. He is the god of this world. Satan personifies sin. So whenever we let sin into our lives, we are actually saying to Satan, Come and rule over me. Come and rule over me. Now, perhaps you never thought of it this way, but sin is a treacherous act that is akin to treason. It's rebellion against the real king who loved you and gave himself for you. He bought you into his kingdom, brought you into the kingdom by his death. And when you let sin have control, that is the same as inviting the enemy to come into God's fortress and to work behind the lines to try to destroy his work. What sin does is to open up the gate secretly at night and to let it into God's fortress or into His house that He has purchased with His own blood. Sin is called hypocrisy. And hypocrisy is a word that means behind the mask. Uh, referred to actors that used to wear masks and an actor pretends to be somebody that he's not. And hypocrisy is when a person says that he is a born-again believer in Jesus Christ, but he wears, and he wears a mask of holiness, but secretly he's living a life of sin. And I don't think that we look at sin that way. Uh, most of us don't see sin as being very serious at all. Uh, we don't see that sin, uh, we don't see it in the same way that God sees it. And so when you have that little vice that you're not going to turn loose of, God sees that as betrayal. God sees that as treason in His kingdom. And how serious is it? Well, we looked at that. I said that. I gave an example. Sin brings death. It always brings death. And there isn't anything more serious than death. Death, of course, would be the antithesis of life. And what is God? The Bible says that God is life. John 17:3 Jesus said and this is life eternal that they may know thee the only true God and Jesus Christ whom thou hast sent. Now just wanted to go over that part first so that you would get it into your mind how serious that sin is. God is never going to turn loose of sin. He's not going to give you a pass on sin. He's going to keep at this thing. He's always dealing with sin in his people because he hates it in every form. So 
you're not going to be done with sin either. Even if you, I mean, even that you have become a Christian, you're not done with sin. You're going to struggle against it. You'll fight against it. You'll do that your entire life. But you continue to do it. If you are a true child of God, you will continue to do it because God has opened up your mind to what sin really is. You see sin. You know what it is. You recognize it. And you don't want to have a part of that if you're a true believer in Christ. He's given you a new heart. And so you don't want sin to rule. The default choice of a Christian is not sin like it is for a lost person. The default choice is to choose what God wants us to do. And that's what a real Christian is. So sin has to be hated and put down at any cost. So what does God demand that you do with sin? Well, he demands that you dethrone it. First, you have to dethrone sin. He demands that you set about immediately rooting sin out of your life. I want to reassert this important point that I talked about a few weeks ago in our study of the gospel. This is what you agreed to when you came to Christ. You asked Him to save you, and then you agreed when you wanted Him to save you that you were done with sin. You said this. You said, I repent of my sin. And then you surrendered with a vow of lordship, of of Christ's lordship over you. And right then and there, you said, I am going to follow you, and I'm not going to let sin reign over me any longer. That's actually what repentance and faith in Christ are. It's a promise that you are going to switch allegiances. You said that you would dethrone sin in your life, and if you hadn't done that, God would not save you otherwise. God wouldn't save you if you didn't say, I will dethrone sin. So sin was the ruler. Christ is now the ruler, and that means that you can't give allegiance to any other king. Now, as I just mentioned a moment ago, when when sin is reigning over you, it's the same as saying that Satan reigns. Sin used to reign. Sin used to be on the throne of your heart. But as a child of God, that's no longer the case. And so we as Christians have our work cut out for us, and that is that we have to take every precaution to keep sin from coming back and taking control. And so what do we do? Well, we close our eyes to sin. We don't look at things we shouldn't look at, and we stop our ears to it. We we guard our minds against evil thoughts, and then we guard our mouths from expressing evil thoughts. Satan can't reign over us where sin is not allowed in, where Satan, uh, where where sin is, Satan is there, and where sin is not, Satan can't be there. So that's first. We have to dethrone sin like you promised to do when you came to Christ in repentance and faith. Now, going on then to the second part that I didn't have time to get to last week, what, is, what else does God expect that we would do? Well, next he says you have to enthrone righteousness. You've got to dethrone sin, and you must enthrone righteousness. Uh, the second part of verse 13 says, Yield yourselves unto God as those that are alive from the dead, and your members as instruments of righteousness unto God. So he's telling us that righteousness has to be put in the place of sin. Now I want to caution you here, lest you get, uh, or lest you have a, make a mistake and get confused about this. This is the place where many people would say, well, when you get saved, the thing that you have to do next, this is the next thing that you do, that you need to make Jesus the Lord of your life. And so you must enthrone God in your life. But I'm not going to say that because... When you became a Christian, Christ took the throne of your heart. He took over. You didn't give him the throne. You didn't put him on the throne. You don't actually have the power to enthrone Christ. He's the king. And he never would have, he never would have saved you 
unless you acknowledge him as king. He's the Lord, and so you never make a mistake about this. It's that, that he's sitting off to the side somewhere, and he's just waiting for the day to come that you're going to give him a hand up and lift him up to sit him on the throne. No, he's already there on the throne. The problem is we don't yield to the one who's on the throne. He's there because he is the king. He is the Lord. Now, the problem is then that we buck the authority, and when we do, when we resist him, and when we put in those kinds of terms like I did a moment ago, that that is treason against God, you need to be thankful for this, that not only is a king, is he a king, but he's also a parent. He's also a loving father. And be thankful that he doesn't snuff you out at the first sign of rebellion. But rather, what does the Scripture say about God? It says that he is, of, he is pitiful and of tender mercy. And it says that he's not dealt with us according to our sins or rewarded us according to our iniquities. Be thankful that he's not only a king, but he is our loving parent. He's not going to cast off any of his children at the first sign of disobedience. You won't do that either as a parent. When your children disobey you, you don't kick them out on the street. If you did, all church members would have homeless children. I mean, everybody would. But instead, what we do with our children, we're patient with them. We keep teaching them until they finally get it. And lots of times we have to use some very... Harsh tactics to get our point across. But nevertheless, we love our children. We're willing to put up with them until they get the thing right. Well, God is that kind of parent also. Uh, His rough tactics are called chastisement. And instead of kicking us out on the street, what he does is use some tough love sometimes. Scripture says that his chastisement is grievous. It's not a pleasant thing to go through. When you're in the middle of it, you think it's the worst thing that could ever happen to you. But then when it's done, it becomes joyous because it accomplishes the purpose that God intended. So what we need to do, uh, just to take this back to more of a physical and practical level, is that as parents, we need to apply God's method, and that is to discipline our children. And when we do, someday they're going to come back, and they're going to say, God, or rather, Dad, thank you for teaching me what to do. And I've seen quite a few parents that wouldn't do that, and their children turn out wrong, they don't do what they're supposed to do, and they're just sorry and they amount to nothing. But God knows what He's doing. He doesn't kick us out, although we do deserve it. Our sins against Him are far worse than what a child could do against a parent. I mean, uh, when you sin against the one who's great, then the sin against Him has to be greater. But because we are His children, we don't need to fear that we are in danger of being cast out and losing our salvation because of disobedience. Now, the point then is that God has put a new desire in us, and though sometimes we do resist Him, we're not going to continue in rebellion. If we do continue in rebellion, then that's a sign that God never was on the heart. God never was on the throne of the heart if rebellion is a continuous thing for us, and that would show that a profession in Christ is not real. Now, returning to our thought... We don't always recognize Christ's authority. We know it, but we don't always yield to it. And so we do let sin rule us at times, and we indulge the old nature. And we have to remember that although we don't always yield to Him, yet He is still there. He is still in our lives. And when we talk about enthroning righteousness, that simply is a, is a practical expression of our Christianity. 
Now, whether we're saved or we're lost, something is going to rule over us. There's, ne- there's never a void. Something is always ruling over us. Something is controlling us. And if you think that you're independent and you can do whatever you want to do, that's against what the Scripture says. Something is controlling you. Our text refutes the idea in verse 16 where it says, Know ye not that to whom ye yield yourselves, servants to obey, his servants ye are to whom ye obey, whether of sin unto death or of obedience unto righteousness. So you're not independent. Either righteousness or unrighteousness rules you. Whatever is not of faith is sin. And so if you're not pursuing the things of the faith, then the only other thing you can be doing is living in sin. So we really need to take time to consider what actually is the practical expression of who we are and the Lord that rules over us. Is it the Lord Christ or is it the Lord's sin that's ruling us? Do you ever stop to think about things that you want to do? Do you ever just stop and think, well, if I do this, will, will this glorify God? If I want to see this thing. If I, if I see that, is that something that will glorify God? Can I say this, and will that glorify God? You know, when you have trouble with gray areas, there's a test that you can always apply. If I do it, will it glorify God? I, I don't think it's really all that hard to figure out what sin is. Uh, in the next part of these lessons, we get into dis- uh, discernment, walking in wisdom, and we'll talk about these kinds of things. How do you determine what sin is? I don't think most of the time it's very difficult at all. Uh, what we just need to do, we can start out by doing, is applying the test. Do you think that it's going to glorify God? And if you're uneasy about it, and if you're not quite sure about it, if there's a question, if it puzzles you, then the best thing to do is just stay away from it altogether. There really isn't any pleasure that you're going to miss that uh, is better than being sure that you've honored God. Well, I want to get more into that aspect uh, in the next lesson but I do, want to, I do want to ask you this. What right do we have to take what belongs to God and to use it to dishonor Him? What right do we have to do that? And when you think about it, what is it that you have that belongs to God? There's only one answer for that. Everything. Everything that you are belongs to God. And what right do you have to take what belongs to God and use it against Him? Now, I want you to understand that even though... Uh, Paul is considering a certain sin in this next verse I, I want to read. He has something more to say to us. In 1 Corinthians six, fifteen and 16, he says, Know ye not that your bodies are the members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them the members of a harlot? God forbid. What? Know ye not that he which is joined to a harlot is one body? For two, saith he, shall be one flesh. Now, we read that and read it in the context. We, we do understand that Paul is considering the sin of fornication. Uh, but as he talks about that, he's talking more about uh, more than just about physical relationships between people. Now, surely he did meant to say, mean to say something about sexual sins that the Corinthians were involved with. But there's a very, very much more important point here that when the Scriptures use the term adultery, that very often God is defining unfaithfulness. That, he, that he's speaking of unfaithfulness to him. Now, in the Old Testament, when Israel followed false gods, God would say, well, they've gone into whoredom. He called it whoredom. Uh, he called Israel an adulterous wife. And that's how he makes the, 
the, the sin of uh, unfaithfulness to him, just very, very descriptive. Uh, it's something that's just nasty and defiling. And so if we take our bodies that belong to God, the body that he purchased and joined to himself as a husband would to his wife, if we take our bodies and use it against the spiritual intent that God has for it, then that is the same, the Scriptures tell us, as spiritual prostitution. Now, there isn't really a kind way that you can say that. And what God never does, He never does try to clean up the image of sin in, in order to keep from hurting our fragile feelings. And that's what we do sometimes. What we like to do is redefine sin. We call it mistakes. Or we change it and we say, oh, well... Uh, the thing that I'm doing, I can't help that because uh, I, I've got a disease. You know, I, I, I weary of people that call their sin a disease, which is their way of saying, well, I have an excuse. I just caught a disease. I can't do anything about it. No, God doesn't pretty up the language to make us feel better about our sins. And so when you drag yourself around looking like the world and trying to fit in the world with your fashion and your speech and your habits... And you've got that old nasty crud that you used to live in before. God simply calls it prostitution. God calls it whoredom. You're involved in filth. And what you get into your mind, uh, I hate to be crude in things like this, but you get in your mind an old nasty prostitute that's ravaged by STDs. And this is what he, this is what he pictures sin as. It's a very despicable thing. And so sin has to be rooted out. Righteousness has to be put in its place. And friends, that takes some strong determination to do it. You're not going to give up sin easily. None of us do. We don't take discipline easily. But neither are you going to have victory if you take a passive stance towards sin. What you have to do with it, you've got to hit it in the head. You've got to strike a death blow to it. You've got to crush it. Fight it with everything that God has given you the ability to fight with. So you think about this, reigning and ruling and victory. Those are words like we talked about this morning when talking about how Satan attacks us. It's a warfare. And it takes a, it takes a battle to defeat the enemy and to rule over him. And that is exactly the way that the Bible describes the Christian life. It's warfare. And if it's warfare, what does that mean you are? Well, it means you're a soldier. You're a soldier in this warfare. And you can be a coward and a deserter or... You can be a hero of the faith. Let me also tell you that there aren't any magical formulas for defeating sin. You can go to the Christian bookstore, pick up a, a book, Five Steps Towards Living in Victory, and I'll just tell you, don't waste your money. Simple thing to do, read the Bible, pick up Romans chapter 6, read it, obey it, and this is the way that you have victory over sin. And if you can't live with that, if you can't live with Romans chapter 6, then you can't live for the Lord. You can't live for Christ. Now, what God will never do, He will not touch sin. He abandoned His own Son at the cross when sin was found on Him. When He was bearing our sins, He abandoned Christ, turned His back on Him. And so don't ever think that He's going to tolerate it in you. So I just have to encourage you about this again. See sin for what it is. Sin is death in the pot. There's a very good analogy about that in 2 Kings. I'd like you to take your Bibles, if you would, and turn to 2 Kings chapter 4. This is one of the stories of uh, the many miracles of Elijah. In 2 Kings chapter 4 and verse number 38, if you'd look there, 
2 Kings chapter 4 and verse number 38. And Elisha came again to Gilgal, and there was a dearth in the land, and the sons of the prophets were sitting before him. And he said unto his servant, Set on the great pot, and seethe pottage for the sons of the prophets. And one went out into the field to gather herbs, and found a wild vine, and gathered therefore wild gourds his lap full, and came and shred them into the pot of pottage, for they knew them not. So they poured out for the men to eat, and it came to pass, as they were eating of the pottage, that they cried out and said, O thou man of God, there is death in the pot, and they could not eat thereof. But he said, Then bring meal, and he cast it into the pot, and he said, Pour out for the people that they may eat, and there was no harm in the pot. Now let me give you just a little bit of background to the story. This was a time when there was a terrible famine in Israel. People were starving. Uh, The prophets of God fared no better than the rest of the people. And so Elijah was visiting the school of the prophets, and he told his servants to make a stew in order to feed them so all of them could eat. Well, these prophets had no money. They couldn't buy good stuff to eat and to put into the stew. And so Elijah sent a servant out to the field to, to gather what he could and bring it back that they could make a stew. And by the way, he sent him out to the field, and sometimes I wonder about this, why all health nuts, you know, uh, go out in the front yard and gather up stuff to eat, eat dandelions and stuff like that, when you could have just good old processed food and it tastes better than that dirt that you're eating. But anyway, uh, these fellows went out to the, uh, out to the field to uh, find some herbs to put into the pot and uh, so get the stuff to make the stew. But the only problem was they weren't too good at this. I mean, they didn't know which things are edible. As far as I'm concerned, everything in the front yard is inedible, so I don't have any problem with that. But uh, this, this fellow went out into the field to uh, pick the herbs, and he picked some things that were poisonous. Now, this was probably a poisonous gourd, but for our purposes, we could say it would be like going out and picking the wrong kind of mushrooms. So he went and picked the mushrooms, and he brought them back, and they put them into the pot, and they cooked them, and there was death in the pot, and they couldn't eat it. So what Elijah did was he cured the pot. He said, bring some meal and put it into the pot. Well, there was no reason that putting some meal into the pot would have helped anything at all, but since Elijah had the power of God, he was able to make it right. So he was able to get rid of all the poison that was in the pot. We said, what do you learn from things like that? Well... We do know this, that in the New Testament, uh, Paul said that these kinds of things are written for our learning. Uh, there's something here that we can learn from this. So what, what can we learn from this? Well, I think we learn from it that this is a lot like sin. Sin is death in the pot. And if you don't do something about it, if you continue with it and you continue eating it, then it's going to kill you every time. It's going to get to you. And uh, Elijah said, come and put some meal into the pot. The meal is what removes death, and the meal is like the gospel of Jesus Christ. That when you put the gospel of Christ in there, it cures things. It makes things better, and the death in the pot pot is removed. And what you don't want to do is go back and put death back in. But that's what a person does when he becomes a Christian, and he doesn't enthrone righteousness in his life. He doesn't let the gospel do its work, and so rather than letting the gospel purge him from his sin... Uh, which it has done, actually, when you put your faith in him, people turn around and they go back and they put death back in the pot. 
They go back to the same old pot, and they eat of that pot, and there's death in that pot. They just go back to the old habits that they were in before, and all of that's poisonous. And that's the thing that we have to get rid of. We've got to get rid of sin, and it's a foolish person that goes back and puts death in the pot. Now, let's go back, uh, let's go a little bit further here to see some characteristics of the victorious Christian life. Actually, I'm just not going to get too much into that. But there are, uh, we'll do it in the next lesson. But there are demands to be met, and implementing, implementing these demands of dethroning sin and enthroning righteousness will set us on a course of victorious Christian living. So what are the characteristics of this victorious Christian life? Well, that's what I want to talk to you about next, and that is the dynamics of living for Christ. Now, notice this very important word in verse 13. Neither yield ye your members as instruments of unrighteousness unto sin, but yield yourselves unto God as those that are alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness unto God. Now, the word that is at the head of both of those sections in the verse is the word yield. And I want us to concentrate on the word yield because the dynamic of the Christian life is this word. It is to yield. So what are dynamics? Well, dynamics is uh, actually a word that comes from the field of mechanics. I'm not talking about an auto mechanic like Bob is, not that kind of mechanics. But dynamics uh, refers to a force, a force that, uh, that's put into motion to affect a change. And when you take dynamics and you add it to the subject that we're talking about here, it's something that causes a change in the supernatural world or a supernatural change. So what takes place here is in the realm of the supernatural. This is not something that you can operate on physically and make a change with. For instance, well, we're talking about your soul. That, that's in the spiritual world. You can't do something physical to the soul. That's in the spiritual world. And so uh, you can't really operate in that world where you can't see doing physical things. Now, if something happens in, in, in this area that's not reached by the physical, and when you apply these dynamics... You're actually stepping into God's sphere so that uh, you're working in God's area, which is something that can never be affected by human ability. Now, this is not really one of the points, but I'm not going to have any further to go. Uh, I can't go any further than this tonight, but this is one of the most important things. And I didn't actually make it a point on your listening sheet tonight, so we're just going to make a point without a bullet. And... uh, I think that we can understand what we're talking about here uh, as far as dynamics are concerned when we think of the number one dynamic, which is faith. Faith is a dynamic. In fact, the overarching dynamic in God's world is the force of faith. That's the thing that we deal with. That's the thing that actually brings us in to God's world. So faith is a spiritual force that we really can't explain. And by force, I don't mean some kind of weird entity that's self-existent, like let the force be with you. I don't mean force in that way. We don't know exactly how God uses faith. We don't know how God makes faith work, how God manipulates faith to make it accomplish his purposes. But there are things that are done by faith that can't be affected in any other way. For instance... um, Faith is very broad in its range. It's, it, it's broad enough to cleanse filthy sinners. That's done by faith. Uh, God's Christ's righteousness is imputed to us by faith. The Bible says that salvation is by faith. I mean, these are all things that defy human reason. We can't figure them out, but it says these are done by faith. Faith is something that also has a place in our everyday lives. 
God's people live by faith. Hebrews chapter 11 is about what Christians were able to do, uh, living godly lives by faith, what they can accomplish by faith. And the writer's point is you can't do anything without faith. Hebrews 11:6 says, without faith is impossible to please God. So we live by faith. Um, to give you an example of that, tithing is a very good example. God said, trust me, have faith in me, and I'll open the windows of heaven for you. There's no way to give an explanation of how God works with the tithe, but God takes nine-tenths, what you have left over when you give him the tithe, and he makes that go further than you could ever hope to if you kept it all to yourself. I don't understand that, and uh, lost people certainly don't understand it. They would tell you, that can't work. No economist is going to tell you that you can do with more with 90% of your money than you can with 100%. He said, it just can't be done. But that's what God's Word says. And that has to be done by faith. And so there are many Christians, though, that live without faith in that area. They don't trust God with what he says about the tithe. And so um, I don't know what to say about that except to say shame on a Christian who thinks that way. They demonstrate that they don't have faith in God. And do you know what that is when you, when you don't have faith in God? That's to call God a liar, to call him a liar. I can't say anything less than, less than what God says. God said, trust me. And you say to him, no. No, we will not trust you. What you said is not true. It can't happen. I know you said that it could happen, but no, it's not going to happen. So I'm not going to give you a tithe because I don't believe that I can actually make it. I can't live in this world living on nine-tenths or less if you give an offering to. I can't live on that. It just can't work. God says it can. And you say, no, it can't. So what's that? That's calling God a liar. You say, well, you're you're not trustworthy, God. I I don't have any other language for that but to say you're calling God a liar. That's the language that God uses. So why don't we just use God's language? Let's don't try to pretty it up any. But I suppose the most pertinent aspect of faith relating to our subject is what we find in 1 John 5 and verse 4 where John wrote, For whatsoever is born of God overcometh the world, and this is the victory that overcometh the world, even our faith. Now, overcoming the world, that's the subject. That's what we're dealing with here in Romans chapter 6. We're talking about overcoming the world system, which is a system of sin. And faith is the thing that overcomes everything that pulls us away from God. Faith is able to do it. Faith is what makes us what God wants us to be. And that kind of faith, that is the most powerful, dynamic that there is in the supernatural world is a force of change and that and faith can make you what you never could be otherwise. Faith itself, though, that's not really the thing that I want to talk about, although everything that we do for God is based on faith. Now, from this passage, we want to look at some of the dynamics of the Christian life. And this is a very uh, good question, a good thing for us to look into And uh, if you hadn't already looked at your listening sheet, you would be greatly surprised with what I'm going to do next. And that is I'm going to quit. I'm going to quit before we get to it because these these dynamics that I want to talk to you about are going to take some time. And uh, I want to give it all the time that it deserves, so we're not really going to get into them this evening. I remember when when I was younger, my dad was preaching that uh, sometimes his sermons would get too long. And he would just say, or he thought they were getting too long, and he would say, well, this sermon's like a freight train. That is, uh, we can just unhook the cars right here where we are, 
And then we'll come back next time and hook back up to the train and take off again. Now, I was thinking about this. I've been doing some more of my walking this week, and I was listening to some of the sermons that my dad preached. And I've got determined, I've never done this before. In, in all my ministry, I've never done this. I've never preached one of his sermons. Some of you have asked me um, what those were like, or you'd like to hear one of his sermons. And uh, I thought, well, what if I just preach one of his sermons? So I'm kind of thinking about that. Maybe early next year, then I'm going to pick one of those sermons out, and I'll preach my dad's sermon, and I'll give you a little bit of a feel for the kinds of things that he talked about. So maybe we'll do that. But this, we're going to do his method here tonight. We're going to unhook the train, and uh, this is part of the train that I want to keep all together, so we'll just unhook before we get into these particular dynamics. But I would remind you of this, that living in victory is as much about recognizing what happened in the past as it is looking to what's going to happen in the future. Because when we see what God has done for us in the past, looking, looking back to how he's accomplished things in our life, there we see how that God settled it all. And that really gives us a basis for victory. And once we see what we can build on, then we're able to look into the future and see what God has in store for us. This is why Paul said, I press toward the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. He was looking forward to what he would receive based upon what God had already done for him. So that's something that we need to do. We need to keep looking back to the past. These are things in the past that we can remember, that we can see how God has worked things out for us. And then we know that God has these good things for us in the future. And I think when Paul said that in Philippians, that he was, he was thinking about the prize that that is worth claiming. And if the prize is worth claiming, the fight to get it is going to be worth it. Everything that you have to do to get it will be worth it. That's the incentive that keeps you going. So let's remember this. Let's remember what Christ did for us. And then we will be assured of what he will do for us. And when you remember those things, you're well on your way to victory. Just keep those things in mind. What, what's, what are the great things that God has done for me. And then you know he's going to fulfill his will in the, in the future as well. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, thank you for your word. Uh, thank you, Lord, for what we learned tonight from this. We need to conquer sin in our lives. Uh, it, it's such a terrible thing. It's, as we've spoken tonight, it's treachery. It's treason against you. And we need to see sin for what it is and see the way that you look at it and then determine that we'll keep the promise that we've made, that we have repented of our sins. We promised that we would trust you by faith. And in that we said you would be the Lord of our lives, which said we are done with sin. Help us to remember the promise that we've made because we know, Lord, you haven't forgotten it. Be with us tonight, Lord. Bless your people. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Ronan Park, California. If you would like further information about our church, please feel free to call us at area code 707-584-7275 or write to us at Berean Baptist Church, 6298 Country Club Drive, Ronert Park, California, 94928. Additionally, you may visit us on the World Wide Web at www.bebaptist.org.